Hello world, I'm Jared Cunningham. This is the Freelance Forum Autumn 2022 podcast series. Over the years, the Freelance Forum has been made possible by support from the National Union of Journalists and the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland. The following episode is a recording made at the Autumn 2022 Freelance Forum live event held on Saturday the 1st of October at Grange Gorman campus of the Technological University of Dublin. In this session, noteworthy editor Maria Delaney, journalist and lecturer Colonel O'Farda, and Roman Shartell from The Ditch talk with Fiona Kenny about investigative journalism. Okay, second session. Uh, Fiona Kenny is a copywriter. She'll be chairing a, uh, Maria, <laughs> Roman, and uh, Colonel. I just noticed over the couple last. In the last week, I hadn't planned this in advance, obviously, um, but uh, noteworthy is uh, just this was the recipient of a Google News Int Innovation Challenge funding, which will enable them to develop new ways of communicating complex and in-depth stories. Congratulations on that, Maria. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> um, and Connell just announced that uh, he's been awarded a, a postgraduate scholarship for his uh, PhD from the Government of Ireland. Again, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> I've been awarded <laughs> 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 uh, I don't know. I don't think the ditch of any formal award yet, but no, yeah, it's early days. I think you got a lot of good for highlighting. I mean, as a result of your work, you know. Um, has had to resign and an inquiry has been introdu- uh, announced into a board panel so you've definitely made quite an impact in quite they're a short time. They're so. the best type of words. Yeah. Thanks very much. <laughs> uh, Fiona, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you take over. Um, hi everyone, welcome. I think what has been planned, un- unless I'm seriously mistaken, is that people are going to talk a little bit about their area and the challenges, I suppose, as well for investigative journalism and the cost and the importance of it more now than ever. Um, So I think the first speaker we have is Maria Delaney, who's editor of Noteworthy. So um, take it away. Thanks very much. Um, Yes, so I'm just going to talk briefly about, I suppose, how I got into investigative journalism, because I started as a freelancer as well, so, um, and then what Noteworthy is, um, and then is investigative journalism with the effort, um, and then I'll give you just three tips um, for freelancers. So I suppose just for me, um, so I did a science degree and then worked in pharmaceuticals for a few years and then moved into freelance journalism for seven years, so I kind of have a bit of a diverse background. And I suppose I I kept with freelance due to flexibility and I was focusing on science journalism, which isn't really, it's it's very difficult to get a job in science journalism in Ireland as well. Um, And I I did a lot of work for European publications. Um, And in terms of investigations when I was freelance, um, I did a big investigation into superbugs in Irish hospitals and kind of the lack, kind of issues around controlling them. And um, yeah, I mainly wrote feature articles rather than, I suppose, straight news articles and for Irish newspapers and European. Um, so I would have actually done some work on kind of what was happening in the parliament, but I've never been there. So <laughs> that might be, actually, uh, I was in, yeah, I was in Brussels. But, um, and also, um, I suppose one of the other things I did as a freelancer was I received reporting grants for some in-depth reporting 
and they weren't um, actually Irish um, grants at the time or they were mainly European or kind of US grants but I'll, I'll talk a bit about that later. And then I moved into Noteworthy three years ago. Um, I suppose one of the other reasons I suppose full disclosure that I was freelance for so long is that I had a lot of health issues and then I had a double lung transplant <laughs> and then I could work full time. So it's a, <laughs> it's a bit of a complex story. Um, so, so for Noteworthy, um, so we're a crowdfunded investigative platform. So we're a bit um, different compared to, I suppose, the newspapers or working as an investigative journalist for a newspaper. Um, so we focus completely on investigative journalism and we're part of Journal Media, who also published the Journal.ie and the 42. Um, so what's our model? Um, it's focused on kind of impactful public interest journalism and it's community led. So all of our stories are sent to us by the public. Then we assess them, kind of come up with projects around them and then put those out for crowdfunding. And once they're funded, then we work on them. So it's, it can take a few months sometimes for funding. So it's a little bit different. Um, and, and the focus is on covering stories that haven't really had that much coverage in Irish media before. Um, and so our funding streams are, there's a few funding streams, so mainly crowdfunding. And um, we also get support from journal media because we're still not completely taking over ourselves. And we also get grants from European organizations. Um, and I'm gonna talk to you about them as well because a lot of those are open for freelancers so you can apply for them. We're also project focused, so we don't really accept pitches from freelancers, but we actually do employ freelancers to work on our projects. So we often employ freelancers, um, for example, we did a recent story on pesticide use by public authorities, and we got a, a freelancer who specialized in nature reporting and environmental reporting to do that. Um, and she also did a previous story on overgrazing on Irish hills. Um, and we also had another freelancer, um, Peter Maguire work on a story on um, sexual ab abuse survivors, sexual kind of um, yeah, se sexual violence survivors, um, called Speaker Survive, and we, we and he actually won the Mary Rafty Award for that last year, and also a just a just as media award. And I suppose the way that we pay freelancers, which is often <laughs> what people would ask, is we actually pay a daily rate because these investigations take so long, we don't actually have like a kind of a rate at the end or anything like that. So it's a bit different from how maybe other kind of feature writer focused platforms would work. So is it worth the effort? Well, at Noteworthy, I suppose we focus on the impact of our investigations. So one of the big impacts is on the communities that we cover. So we often cover kind of diverse and seldom heard voices. So we've covered a lot on travellers, disabled people, and kind of amplifying what issues and kind of obstacles that they face. And um, we often get a lot of feedback on how we cover issues. So when we go to cover issues that probably haven't been covered very well by the media, we go to the people and ask them how this should be covered, what kind of words we should be using. For example, we used to use people with disabilities and then when we went to disabled people, they said, no, disabled people is what we want to be called because we're not someone with something. This is part of who we are. So it's kind of just that kind of different way of thinking. I suppose one of the other impacts is policy. So I suppose one of the examples I might use is IVF funding. 
So we did a big story on IVF funding last year, and actually I've been covering this for a few years. And following that story, we show that there was millions of profits being made by the private sector in this area. And we also told the story of loads of people of how they were being impacted. And actually, Paul Murphy cited our investigation on the people that told their stories as the reason he spoke out about IVF <coughs> earlier this year, which led to more debates than the doll, led to the announcement of funding in the budget. Now, I'm not giving credit to my, our, our investigation for this because this has been campaigned for years, but it just shows that there are impacts that can lead to different things happening because of what you do. Um, I suppose the other thing is um, impacts on society. So, for example, um, my um, one of our journalists, um, Niall Sargent, is an environmental investigative journalist, and he did a huge ten-part series on the um, kind of the mass uh, extraction of peat by kind of the, the wide-scale extraction of peat by companies, and he kind of changed the debate from imports earlier or kind of late last year, where people were talking about importing peat to exports by showing that actually 11.5 times more peat was exported than imported. So it just kind of shows that these kind of things can have a bit of an impact. But for freelancers, is it worth the effort? Because it is a very high cost endeavor, um, but it can have a high reward as well. Now for me, there wasn't actually that many grants around when I was a freelance journalist. Um, I did get some European grants and I got some US grants, but I actually subsidised my investigative work by working other work. <laughs> so that's probably not ideal, but I would have worked um, on a lot of, with the science publications, which pay very well because if you have a science background, and then I kind of used that extra time to work on kind of Irish investigative stories. So that's probably not the ideal way to do it. But there are grants now available on a European scale. Um, so there's the journalism fund, um, for example, we actually have a grant at the moment on modern slavery unveiled, which looks at trafficking kind of from Asia to Europe, and we're looking at kind of migrant fishers kind of <coughs> that way. But that's actually geared towards freelancers because publications don't get paid for their journalist work, but freelancers get paid for their time and their expenses. So just kind of journalismfunds.eu is something you should definitely look at. And there's also the Freelancer Support Scheme, the IJ4EU, so that's investigative journalism for EU.net, which Jared uh, <laughs> might send the links later. Um, and that's closed just now, but it's open again in January. And that provides grants up to €20,000 for freelancers. Um, so, and there's other supports, like there's a cancer journalism fund, where if you're looking at cancer, they'll fund you, I think it's up to €3,000. And there are some worldwide grants as well. So that's definitely a route. And you have to have cross-border investigations for that. So you have to team up with colleagues across Europe or across the world. So finally, I'll, I'll stop talking soon, but my top three tips for freelancers. So the first thing is just access information. And um, Ken Fox, who used to be my editor before I'm editor, um, so he's absolutely brilliant on freedom of information, access to the environment. He's an absolute lead campaigner on this. And I suppose I learned a lot from him. 
And one thing he did was if there was something he thought of, oh, we should look into this, he just sent what he thought of straight away. So AIE, FOI, and then you kind of forget about it and you can come back to it when it comes in or you can follow up or whatever. But it is kind of the shoot in FOI or AIE when you think of it. It doesn't take that much time. I know like it is something that you mightn't get back anything from, but you might also get back something really interesting. <coughs> I suppose one of my specialities is finding public information, so I often don't rely on AIE or FOI because there's actually, as a health journalist, there's so much public information out there. Um, for example, I used to specialise in infectious disease before COVID, <laughs> so I would have looked at, got a lot of stories from data on the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control, so the ECDC, something that every journalist knows about now, but back then very few people looked at. So things like measles rates going up and mumps and stuff, I would have kind of reported back in the day. Um, and those things are kind of something you can look into as an investigation as well. And um, I suppose two examples, one recent story I worked on was um, on inpatient bed numbers. And I just looked at capacity reviews that people haven't really looked at and show that um, basically that the increases in bed numbers are only bringing us back to 2009 levels now because of the huge decreases. And I basically looked at all the capacity reviews <coughs> over the years and did the data on them. So it's kind of something that you can look at and kind of have a good finding that way. Also, we did a huge investigation on genuity science, the main company involved in DNA sequencing, and it took a lot of work, but it was entirely Googling that we did it with. Um, and found 25 links to facilities such as hospitals, universities, research facilities that had received fund funding from this kind of controversial company. And the final thing is, I've mentioned it a lot here, is this collaborate and network. Join an association if you're interested in health or if you're interested in science, join the Science Journalism Association, build up your networks, build up your collaborations and kind of apply for these cross-border grants and things like that. And if you have any questions, like ask me afterwards and my email is maria at noteworthy.ie. It's very simple, so email me anytime. Thanks. Thank you so much. Just to say to everybody that there, um, um, if keep a note of your questions because an awful lot of this is actually going to be back and forth with the full panel, <coughs> so everybody's going to be able to answer questions, and there's going to be plenty of time at the end. Thank you so much. Um, who is going next? Is it you? It's me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, next up, we have Conal O'Farrita, who's journalist and a uh, lecturer in news and investigative journalism. So thanks very much, Conal. Uh, hi everyone. Um, I typed something out. I'm that old-fashioned and I'm a print journalist so I, I, I saw the iPad and said that would have been smarter but anyway I didn't do that um, so thanks to Jared for inviting me to speak um, I really appreciate it um, so my name is Conor Fort. I was um, a senior reporter with the Irish Examiner from 2008 to 2020 um, and now I'm I don't know why but I'm doing a PhD in media studies um, in Maynooth uh, looking at how the media frames scandal um, because I suppose I, I wrote a lot about scandal. Um, uh, anyway, I don't know if that's a good idea or a bad idea, but um, that's what I'm <laughs> what I'm doing. Um, I do a little bit of lecturing as well. Um, I was never a freelance reporter, so I'm going to talk more kind of abstractly about investigative journalists. I was also never formally an investigative journalist for the Irish Examiner, but I tended to write about things that took a long time and I was slow. Um, so I suppose they just left me alone. Um, and I kind of got away with it for 10 years. Um, but I have dipped in and out since I've left. So I, I have, I did a story recently on 
the fact that the government's quietly shelved the investigation it had planned into how the Mother and Baby Homes Commission um, took uh, its testimony from people. So I, you know, I do dip my my foot in every now and then, kind of on my own terms. So I, I actually quite like the idea of freelancing because. I don't have to go and interview Jedward or you know do things that I don't want to do. Um, my main focus when I was a reporter was, I suppose, and it maybe what I if I'm known at all, it's I'm known for the work I did on um, Ireland's treatment of un unmarried women and their children um, and related practices around that. So I did a lot of work on forced and illegal adoption, mother and baby homes, Magdalene laundries, um, infant trafficking, uh, intercountry adoption. Um, falsification of records by religious orders, falsification of identities, um, and I suppose latterly kind of infant mortality and, and things like that. Um, I started doing it in 2009, so I suppose for the, the vast majority of the time I was doing it, it generated absolutely no traction or no pickup or very little interest. Um, and I would say now it's a big story, at the time it wasn't. Um, so one of my I'll kind of do similar to Maria. One of the tips I would have is don't be afraid to write about something because it matters, you know, even if people aren't particularly interested in it or RTE doesn't cover it or, you know, stories sometimes have their moment and the fact that you have done the work on it will stand to you um, because you can go back and hold people to account by saying, no, 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 we knew this long before then. Um, and I think that's one of the key things I learned is that the longer you do it, the better you get at it. And the more stories you produce, the more you can hold people to account with them. Um, so I, like I suppose the other thing, I, I would have no problem in admitting that I'm probably a one issue journalist. And it's one of the things I used to get a lot of slagging for that I was constantly pitching the same story or the same, I suppose, general milieu of stories all the time um, and I'm totally fine with that it, it is an obsession with me it remains an obs obsession with me um, I would argue given that the scale of human rights abuses at play in the area of women and children in Ireland and particularly women and children of a specific class um, you know it wasn't covered um, and I think it should have been covered you know more than it was um, so I have no problem with that accusation um, and I think an obsessive streak in an investigative journalist is a good thing. Um, it's maybe not a, a good thing in the rest of your life but it's a good thing for an investigative reporter. Um, like you have to be dogged, you have to be um, like accepting of dead ends and accepting of never really getting anywhere. Um, in a weird way that's the kind of um, masochistic element of it that investigative journalists enjoy um, because there's always another way, there's always someone who eventually you'll find, there's always a way to access the document. You know, I'm, I'm quite a pessimist in my normal life but I'm a, an eternal optimist as a journalist that there's always a way to figure something out. Um, so I mean, I would have been, you know, pulling birth certs and death certs and traipsing around cemeteries and I mean I broke into Sunday's Well Magdalene Laundry at 3am one time on my own time just because I was trying to understand how people move through the institution like this is the kind of psychotic things that you end up doing but it works you know that you know it, it helps you get a sense of the story and, and what you're trying to do um, and I have boxes of stuff that I still never used um, and I keep everything 
religiously because you know you never know when something that's of no benefit to you now five years down the line all of a sudden fills in a gap in a story and I've actually had that happen on vaccine trials being files related to vaccine trials being altered um, that wasn't the word I was initially going to use but I was advised and I wrote the story to use the word altered um, <laughs> because I couldn't figure out a gap in the sequencing and actually it turns out I had something from someone years previously and all of a sudden it filled the gap so again keep everything <coughs> don't be afraid to keep everything be a bit of a hoarder um, I suppose like, like Maria how I got into it um, I had written a few stories on prospective adoptive parents um, adopting from abroad um, this was in 2008 when I when I started in the examiner I was 24 25 um, and just I was reading around old Oireachtas committee hearings as you do um, if you've nothing better to do um, and I, I came across Susan Lowen from the Adoption Rights Alliance and she mentioned the word illegal adoptions and how the government had not really done anything about them and when is that when are people going to wake up to this blah 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 so like any curious journalist I said what are illegal adoptions I picked up the phone I tracked down Susan and she said you're the first journalist to have called me in years so I said great is there a story in this I couldn't find anything really so I I met Susan in Dublin she I, she had bumped into another lady who who had been working with natural mothers um, and they told me the story of Tressa Reeves uh, who was an English lady who was born to Irish parents she'd been sent to Ireland in secret in the 60s to give birth to her child in a private nursing home in Dublin. Um, from there she was taken to St. Patrick's Guild which is a religious run adoption agency. <coughs> been in the news quite a lot now but at the time wasn't at all. Um, they arranged for the child to be given to an adoptive couple and told the parents to register the child as if it had been born to them. Um, therefore there was no legal basis for this to happen. Also there was no paper trail of her son having ever been born to her. Um, she had spent the next 50 years of her life trying to find him, um, which she couldn't because there was no documentation to show he'd ever been born to her. So I has, was astonished that this could happen. Um, and I wrote the story. Um, I went to England to interview her. I spent a few days there. I managed to get, she had a lot of documentation, Gara, that I wrote the story. Generated a little bit of traction, but not, um, they, gave me a price, they gave me a price for it somewhere. But it didn't, it didn't kick off like I thought it would. I thought this was astonishing. So I suppose the lesson in that for as an investigative journalist was um, I probably focused too much on the case study aspect and too much on the emotional aspect of it. And I think sometimes journalism can slip into tugging at the heartstrings too much. You need an element of that, but I think the best journalism is systemic. It should try to focus on systemic failures. Um, no matter what you're looking at. For me, there were thousands of tresses. This was something that not just St. Patrick's Guild was engaged in, this was something a lot of adoption agencies, religious run adoption agencies were engaged in, deliberately falsifying or facilitating the falsification of births to allow under-the-counter adoptions. And it had to have been happening with the imprimatur of the state because these were state-funded um, entities. Uh, so from there on in, I said, focus less only use a case study unless it can expose a wider truth, it can expose something more systemic and more systemic failing. Um, so I suppose that's, to me, that's a lesson for anything you do, is try and see a deeper picture, a wider picture. So if someone tells you something, see how you can broaden it out. Um, and that's, that's what I did for pretty much from 2009 on. I just tried to keep writing about this issue. Um, the, and the problem with case studies also, 
I don't want to say the problem, but when you focus too much on one person's story, is that the, you know, the government and the state can turn around and say, these are isolated incidents, it's one bad apple. Um, and if something Mary Raftery said a lot as well, and she was right, is that you know, the more you build up a systemic insight into something, the more you can throw the fact at them that, no, this happened here, 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 here. And you can't put it back in the box then. And that's something I learned with that story, is that I needed to do that more. Um, and you know, it, it took until 2018, the government eventually acknowledged that illegal registrations was a big problem and St. Patrick's Guild had been up to their necks in this. Um, and of course, then I could point back to like 10 years of reporting on this and say, you know, I told you so, you knew about it. We were, you were constantly being told this and ignoring it, um, which is the value of just keeping hammering away on something. Um, and the Special Rapporteur on Children said the state knew since the 50s and had consciously turned a blind eye to all of this, um, which was a big big moment for a lot of people involved in this because it, it happened to a lot of people. Um, the second thing, I suppose, um, uh, is to kind of be wary of official narratives and slipping <coughs> into towing the, towing the state line. Um, like to give you an example, the infant mortality case, the Tum story, which is what kind of brought a lot of my work maybe more into the, the public eye um, when that all happened, um, again, the media reported on it, uh, you know, they went, Catherine Corliss found all this in Tume, the state then said, you know, thank you to Catherine Corliss and now we're going to do something about it. Um, that became the line, um, whereas I would always go, now I had the background in it to know, but I, I'm always very wary of those types of convenient stories and convenient narratives. So I knew that, well, I, I strongly suspected that the state would have had knowledge of this prior to then. So I had built up enough, um, I suppose, trust with people that I'd spent so long writing about it that I, I knew there had to have been more there. So I obtained you know, a report into the Bespera Mother and Baby Home that was prepared in 2012. So two years before the tumour revelations, I got a, a confidential memo within HSE management about that they had obtained an archive relating to tumour. They already had the Bespera Mother and Baby Home material and they had looked at this in relation to the Magdalene Laundries investigation two years earlier um, because of course everyone thinks that all of these things are separate when in fact they're all related to the one story which is tre treatment of women um, where they were fully aware of concerns around infant mortality and in fact had been so so conscious of the level of material that they were finding that they advised it should go to the minister for a full state inquiry so this was two years before the tomb story broke so I suppose my lesson there was be aware of what you're being told is not always, the state narrative is not necessarily the correct one. Um, always question it. Um, like I think we have to challenge accepted narratives. That's where journalism should reside. Uh, we can be a little bit too comfortable with um, state proffered lines, press releases, editor's notes in press releases telling you, you know, here's a handy Q&A box. We found all this out in 2018. Well, in fact, we didn't. Um, I think that's done because of the way modern journalism is time sensitive. So you kind of have to get stuff turned around quickly. Investigative journalism should always be that little bit slower. Um, always be wary of leaks is another thing I'm very skeptical of. Like why you're leaked a specific aspect of a report. Um, you know, you often see them on the front page. I, I never got anything leaked around mother and baby homes. And I wrote pretty much everything on it. Um, probably because if someone was leaked a line, if I was leaked a line from a report by a minister, um, I would say, well, give me the whole report and I'd read it myself and I'll decide what, what's in it. I don't think we do that enough as journalists. I think investigative journalists do it more. Um, 
you know, I think the leak should be the start of journalistic inquiry, not the end. Um, don't overly focus on being first is another thing I think that is, is an important lesson I learned. We're obsessed with the scoop. Sometimes the scoop isn't the best story. It isn't the best way of presenting the story, you know, in 500 words on the front page. Um, lastly, uh, I think making a difference. Um, like, that's a more difficult one. I, like Maria pointed to, the impact it has, and I think investigative journalism really, it has a lot of disappointment, but it, it can and does make an impact, and it often makes the impact with people that, ma that it matters to, that it, like, to the people that you're writing about. Um, I, again, just to give you an example, um, again, uh, keeping documents that you've had for years, I had done an FOI into the minutes between the McAleese Committee and the government when they were investigating the Magdal Laundries, and I got reams of stuff. Um, and then when the redress scheme came out about the laundries, everyone said, wrote the story that it was, now it was done and dusted. And I, I kept writing about the redress scheme because it was really bad. It wasn't very sexy journalism, but I, I knew there was a lot of, you know, the way Ireland does things is we apologize, we set up a redress scheme which silences people. And the redress scheme is usually really, really poor, and it's very rarely covered in depth because there's a lot of complexity to it. Um, so anyway, this redress scheme was, was leaving people out. And I, I was aware of people who were in the On Green On training center. They had been excluded even though they all worked in the laundry. The state line on this was that, well, they were separate institutions from the High Park Laundry, even though they were on the same campus. All of the people who were in On Green On worked in the laundry, ate the same food, slept in the same building. Um, and from these minutes, which I'd obtained years earlier, there was something from the HSC management saying they had obtained evidence that On Green On and High Park were one and the same thing. So they basically the state was acknowledging this was the same institution, while at the same time excluding people from redress. Um, two women had gone to the High Court um, to try and overturn that decision. They had also been to the Ombudsman. The Ombudsman ruled against them. Um, but then I, two days after that ruling, I published this story saying they were the same thing. And as a result, they brought that evidence to the High Court and they agreed, the Ombudsman agreed that they would review the decision that it took initially. Um, there was a judicial review agreed. And then the Ombudsman essentially decided to look more in, in more depth at the decision and all of a sudden started to find problems with the redress scheme. Um, subsequently, they launched an investigation into the Magdalene Laundry redress scheme, which they found had been maladministered, that the government was essentially listening, taking the word of the nuns over the word of the women. It had wrongly excluded women from redress. Um, um, anyway, the long and the short of it is eventually the government you know, accepted the Ombudsman's um, recommendations, opened reopened the redress scheme, widened the redress scheme, and it has had to admit many more women into it. Um, I was writing about that for five years. So again, to tell you why it's important to stick with something, lots of these stories gain no traction. But in the end, you can get there, and you can, because every story has its moment. So like Maria said, like sticking with something, it can have an impact, and it does impact the people that matter, even at the time when it doesn't feel like it's a big story or it's getting a lot of traction. Always remember the people you write about. Um, and yeah, they're kind of, that's kind of it for me. Thank you so much. Um, uh, next up we have uh, Roman Shortle who writes for uh, the, the Ditch, which should be in everybody's <laughs> vision at the moment. Uh, fire ahead. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, basically um, I never worked as a journalist. Um, I come from a legal background. Uh, I 
I've worked uh, in a solicitor's office for about 10 years, um, just doing paralegal work. Um, and then myself and Owen, we kind of had this idea to uh, set up an independent investigative news platform, um, which we did last year. Um, it's been really interesting. I would say it's probably um, the most fun that I've had in my career or in my life. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's something um, in, on, in one respect, it's very different to what I did before. Um, but on the other hand, it's, um, it, it does share similarities with legal work because you're doing a lot of research. Um, you know, you're, you're looking to find things uh, exactly <coughs> like you would if you were researching for a legal case. Um, so in, in, in that respect, like it's quite similar. Um, I suppose when we, when we started the ditch, one of the problems that we had is that we wouldn't necessarily have had the same uh, contacts that some more established people would have, uh, more established uh, investigative journalists. Um, so it was it, it, it just made it a lot more difficult to maybe uh, develop stories that bit further um, we, we were and, and even still now like to to a certain extent we very much rely on um, people you know members of the, the the public just contacting us and giving us uh, tips we wouldn't have uh, I suppose as many kind of um, political contacts as, as, as some other people might have um, I suppose like we we were tipping away like for I suppose about a year um, some of we had some hits some misses um, but I think things really kind of took off with the uh, stuff that we did uh, I think we started in April with the onboard Planola um, stories so that basically started with somebody contact, co contacting us and just saying, like, look, there's been a lot of kind of uh, stories here and there in the media about onboard Planola, particularly around um, judicial reviews, um, you know, uh, de decisions being made uh, about certain projects that maybe would have surprised people. Um, so we started looking into the the deputy chairperson uh, first, who has now resigned um, as a result of the uh, allegations that we've published, and it kind of it all started from there. Um, like one thing I would say is just as a tip, um, maybe some of you are aware of this, some of you aren't, but one of the the best resources um, that I found as an investigative journalist and particularly in the area of housing is uh, getting a land direct.ie account so that's it's just basically an account that um, I think mainly solicitors get them but anybody can get one of these accounts with the land registry and it allows you to search um, for uh, folios, registered owners of properties, um, the registry of deeds, which would show uh, transactions um, that have taken place on certain properties. So, like a, a lot of the initial work that we did surrounding the deputy chairperson's um, declarations of interest 
related to his property interests. So the the, the land registry was a gold mine in that regard. It it can be expensive. Um, it's five euro, I think, per folio that you search. Um, some of the stuff you can there's certain ways you can kind of manipulate um, how you search for data, which would maybe allow you to get like more data um, than than you normally would from from the account. Um, and I suppose like w one of the things one of the things that I find interesting talking to um, not necessarily other investigative journalists but just o other um, journalists like you know who do day-to-day -day stuff uh, is that a lot I think a lot of people aren't maybe necessarily aware of the the amount of information that's there in the public it's it's actually quite incredible what you can find by you know searching um, on planning permission uh, sections on council websites um, the documents that you can find there sometimes are, are incredible like I think in one case when at the start of <coughs> our, our onboard planola uh, digging um, I was I was able to find that a receiver had been appointed to a particular property through documents um, available from I think it was Cork County Council on their planning section just going into the file it was actually a planning application made by the um, person who had bought the land from the previous person but you have this full file with documents um, all sorts of documents that maybe you wouldn't expect to find there you might just expect that there would be a planning application you know drawing stuff like that but it, it's incredible what other stuff people send in with planning applications um, and you, you can basically get a tip from uh, something you find in, in one of those documents and um, just take it from there um, the uh, an, another good site is the uh, high court search uh, site um, you can search like if somebody has been a defendant uh, or a plaintiff in particular cases um, there is um, there's probate.ie uh, which will show like you know who's been left a particular uh, property like from a relative or whatever there's just there's there's they're just a few examples um, and I think like what maybe some people might find interesting is that like a lot of our, our, our work, I would say most of our work um, that we've done, um, all, all of the material that we've um, used in our stories, I'd say 90-95% of it has come from uh, stuff that's available like to anybody, um, to any member of the public or journalist like, that, that, that you can access instantly. Um, we like we have gotten some um, sorry we have gotten uh, some stories out of uh, freedom of information requests I find it a very like very frustrating process um, I, I think that's uh, probably an understatement um, I'm sure like if, if any of you follow the likes of Ken Fox like it's just incredible like the work that he does like and the, the the effort that he puts into um you know kind of forcing 
various different agencies to release information. Um, I, I suppose, like, as someone who would have dealt a little bit with FOIs before in my previous line of work, but not um, those would have been FOIs relating to personal requests for people's information that they needed, like, to, to progress a case. Um, I, I think I'm probably um, amazed, like, at the the kind of lack of transparency, I would say, in most <coughs> state organisations. Um, you know, you have to fight tooth and nail, like, just to get even very, very, very basic information that some of it should actually really uh, be available online for people to look at anyway. Um, and just, you know, frustrating FOI requests sending entire files where it's just black 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 everything is redacted completely pointless stuff um, then when you want to uh, appeal it it's extremely difficult you have to go through the internal appeals process which usually is just uh, a more senior person person rubber stamping what the other um, uh, decision maker has decided um, then you have to go to the uh, information commissioner. It takes months to get a decision. It can be really frustrating. So I suppose that's why we try not to kind of rely too much on freedom of information requests. It, it, it's it's just it's extremely um, it's it's extremely difficult. I think to um, develop stories from them. But that said, like they they can be unreal. Like if if you're if you hit the jackpot with them, uh, so to speak, um, and then again, like the the more recent stuff that we did that we did would have been um, the stuff on the former junior minister Robert <coughs> Troy. Um, again, like your best friend on those type of stories is the the land <coughs> registry. Um, you know, you, you you can search in so many different ways to see like what. Um, transactions uh, you know that people have been involved in uh, property deals and stuff like that um, I think like it's kind of amazing how if you if you can't get one piece of information from uh, for example on the land registry you won't uh, see what the sale price was for a property um, so then you have to go on to the property price register uh, the commercial lease register, uh, again, all these different databases that you can use um, to, to develop all of these stories. Um, but it, I think it's, it's, uh, it's just a matter of, I suppose, realizing that uh, you're not going to find all of your information in one place. It's, it's always going to be scattered like over loads of different sites and, and, and places like that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose like uh, it's I suppose by accident, <coughs> not by design. Like we've kind of become um, a, almost like a housing publication. Like that seems to be where um, a lot of our focus is at the moment. We're still working on stuff um, with uh, on on board Planola. Um, still looking into like various different, uh, you know, dissecting various different property 
deals and transactions by vulture funds and um, banks and, and things like that, looking into receiver sales, um, you know, with, with various different uh, um, organisations. Um, and yeah, I suppose then in terms of like, uh, you know, is investigative journalism worth it? Uh, I, like, I, I'm not a freelancer, so um, I'd say like, you, you, your answers would be very different uh, to mine. Um, I understand like how difficult it is. We're, we're in a pri privileged position because we can uh, spend months if we need to uh, on a particular story. Uh, there's no real kind of pressure to, um, to, to get stories out like on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, one of the complaints that I hear like from a lot of uh, mainstream journalists is that they have the leads, they have access to the information, but they don't have the time. So they're under pressure, you know, to get their day-to-day -day stories out. And they're almost doing these investigative journalism stories in, in the background, even though arguably those stories are a lot bigger than the stuff that they're publishing on a on a day-to-day -day basis. So I, I think that's kind of... Um, I think that's a tragedy really like that there are so many stories that remain untold because people simply aren't given the resources or time to look into them and I think that's you know that that's a that's a matter really for um not for journalists but the people that fund them like they need to ask themselves well you know especially bigger mainstream publications uh you know, RTE uh, gets a lot of funding from the state. Uh, you know, uh, the the Irish <coughs> Times would have a fairly big turnover. Um, uh, sorry, I mean like a, a revenue uh, turnover, and you know they need to kind of. Um, I think they need to step up to the plate. Maybe, um, possibly, you know, allocate a lot more money to investigative journalism, and maybe you know have people um on their books who they can just say right here's your salary off you go and you know if you're only producing three four five six stories a year that's fine you know as long as they're um you know that they're 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 decent enough like um so i think like there's loads like the, the main issue like surrounding yeah investigative journalism of course it's worth it like you're doing a massive public service um in exposing wrongdoing and you know hopefully as a result of that um you know things uh, will work better for people like i i hope just on a personal note that you know aside from everything else that's going on with on board panola that maybe you know, as a result of it, that there will be much better governance in that organisation, mm. and maybe people working there will realise that the decisions that they're making, um, you know, we're all surrounded by buildings and everything here. They're going to be here probably long after we are, and you know, th the future generations have to live with the consequences of whatever planning decisions are, are made uh, by those authorities. So uh, clearly, like you know looking at it broadly like that you know investigative journalism is seriously important um arguably the, the most important um kind of area of journalism i think so 
you know, why why isn't it being funded? Why isn't there, um, you know, uh, you know, I know that there are, there are there is some kind of you know grants and funding available, but it's 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 pretty dismal. Like it's it's um, you know peanuts compared to what's actually needed um, in terms of uh, you know time and resources. Like some of these investigations cost thousands and thousands of euro. And, you know, I'd say, like, from a freelance point of view, you know, you hear stories of freelance journalists spending three months on a story and then getting a few hundred euro for it. Like, it's, it's, it's not sustainable. Um, so, you know, the, the question is, like, how do you address that? Does the state have to step in and maybe, uh, you know, start properly funding uh, investigative journalism? I'd argue that it's probably not in their best interest to do that um, because, you know, they have to deal with the consequences of whatever we as investigative journalis journalists um, expose. Um, so, like, if that's not going to happen, then again, it goes back to, uh, you know, maybe larger media organisations saying, well, you know, maybe some of the money that we uh, have uh, needs to be allocated without looking at it from a commercial, purely commercial point of view. Maybe, um, you know, we need to look at this from a kind of a broader uh, public service point of view. Um, I know that might sound naive, but, you know, it, it's, I think people like are, are, are crying out for more investigative journalism. And I think it's yeah. something that probably people are going to talk about in the sort of when questions go to the floor. Thank you so yeah, much. For no that. problem. That was really, really great. Um, just going to ask you a couple of questions and then, um, or a few things that came up there and then questions to the floor. And I think it's something pertinent to what Roman was just saying there as well, is um, I was going to ask you, uh, Maria, because I know it's very different for you, uh, Connell, having been a uh, staff journalist and have been slightly different. Um, in relation to Noteworth, how difficult is crowdfunding? So I think because, and, and you, you would run something which is successful, award-winning, presumably it's still very difficult to figure out how to finance this. How yeah. hard is it? Yeah, no, it is difficult, definitely. Um, and we still, I suppose at the start, we were kind of, as Roman was saying, it's very costly. We're kind of under-costing things because we weren't really, I suppose, I suppose it just was like we, we hadn't really done it before, so we weren't sure how long it would take. And then... We did have to kind of supplement the, we have, we call it a general fund, but we have, we did have to supplement it. Um, and I suppose that's one thing, if you are applying for grants, cost them right, <laughs> because, um, and cost your daily rate right as well, because otherwise you just won't be able to afford it. But yeah, crowdfunding is difficult and it depends on the subject. So we find, so say we've done a lot of environmental journalism. So we have a kind of a core group of environmental supporters and if we put out something for crowdfunding um, we do get a lot of support because because we have done work in this area they know how, how we work we know we've produced results and had impact and therefore they um, would fund us but for things like I do a lot of work on social justice so I would find those projects more difficult to fund and also harder to ask people to fund because obviously we go to community groups and we ask them about stories and then we can't really do the project until it's funded and kind of explaining that to groups and everything is and like people are more accepting of that type of media mm -hmm. now as well which is good 
But if you're asking someone from a, like say a more vulnerable community and kind of especially like a community in kind of the lower economic area, it's very difficult to say that we have to crowdfund this. Um, so to get over that, I suppose we try and appeal to the wider community for funding particular groups, um, or we apply for grants for some projects. Um, for instance, um, the project I'm working on at the moment is focused on Filipinos, which wouldn't really have a broad <coughs> crowdfunding appeal in Ireland, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so we had to go um, to get a grant for that. So it does depend on the subject, it really does, um, unfortunately. <laughs> and it is um, the kind of, the, the more vulnerable communities are harder to fund, unfortunately, as well. Okay. Yeah. The question I was going to ask you, Romana, um, it was um, especially in relation to Onboard Planola, but even more so in relation, I think, to the Robert Troy. Um, how, how much credit do you think, when it transferred across, did the ditch get for 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 the initial work i know i know that publications always you know will piggyback yeah. on each other and whatever I, I mean was it was it worth it i know you're saying that it's you know serving the public good and all of that sort of stuff as well and um, how hard is it maybe to get the recognition or maybe for people to for the status with the newer with the newer you know yeah um, no, I think most. Yeah, I think most publications uh, did credit us with the with, with the initial stories, um, and and still do. Like when when they pick up on the stories that we published, um, I, I think there's only been maybe probably one or two stories that yeah. they've they've um, you know used material or our stories and not credited us. Um, I also think like that the the mainstream media played an important role in actually pushing the story a yeah. little bit further. So the Irish Examiner were the first, um, I think it was Keenan Brennan was the first journalist to publish yeah. something that we had published, um, one of the first stories, and it kind of just took off from there. You know. So on the flip side then, are you surprised at the level of, I don't know, success in such a short space of time? Yeah, I mean, at the start it was... A recognition, yeah, you know, was it being yeah. valid and... You know. Yeah, I suppose at the start, like you know, you've every everybody's wondering like who are these headbangers, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know, and you kind of have to just keep at it, like, and you know, nobody really wants to talk to you. Politicians are kind of like, you know, who are these guys? Um, maybe they're a bit of a joke or whatever. Um, and you know, it, it it takes a while, like, but yeah, I think that was the story where maybe people actually said, oh, you know, m you know, maybe what these guys are doing has merit or whatever you know well i think in that way then it's a really sort of um good thing for freelancers then to be able to to look at the ditch and say actually yeah there is there is still room for people to just you know have a bit of confidence in what in what they're doing what i was going to ask you in relation to this connor was um this might be a really well it actually could be a stupid question but i'm gonna ask it anyway um the length of time you spend on a particular issue or a story, how do you know when you're actually, or how do you think you know specifically when you're ready to go with the story? Or um, when you know need to stop, or when the time yeah. is right? Uh, do you still find that hard? Yeah, okay. uh, it's been a big problem with me. Um, and one of the things I used to get hammered on all the time was just like, give it up, <laughs> just publish something. I, I, I think about this all the time. I don't really know the answer to it. Okay. Um, 
especially with the stuff I did, it, like a lot of the material I would get would be, like it took me probably three or four years writing about the subject to get anything from people working inside this, like inside government departments or yeah. within Tuslar or the HSE to give me documents I couldn't get outside of FOI. And then the more I got that information, the more I go, that's sending me in another way. And I would keep going and keep going. I suppose, like, it points to something Roman was saying, like, the frustration for me working within a news organization was that I was expected to feed the beast and yeah. report daily stuff. And then most of the material that I, the work that I, that I, that I did on this was kind of on my own time and in the background and at the weekends and, um, and that's not a good way to work for that your seems own. seems to be very much a feature of our, of the financial pressures in Irish journalism. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, you know, it, it's helpful in the sense that I could put in FOIs and you know, um, at the time when you had to pay for them, um, and I could dedicate, you know, I could use the company money for that or whatever. But I suppose I just gradually felt like if I had enough for a, a top line that I felt that could last and that could hold a story, I would go with that because the longer I wrote the more I realized that you know when I publish something something else would come from it yeah so I, I moved away from feeling I had to write like you know two-day series over four pages every single time in order to kind of get to the bottom of something rather I would go with what I have and see where that takes me then yeah. um, but it's a big frustration because I think a lot of journalists like especially <coughs> investigative journalists like I want to know the answer and it frustrates the hell out of me if I can't and I would just keep going till I go there's something else there but I think you can also run yourself into trouble doing that because you'll never publish anything okay. um, so a, yeah it, there's no real right or wrong answer I suppose um, just going to open it up to the floor Is anybody any specific questions um, yeah just um, two, uh, two questions uh, one would be uh, for investigative journalists who are freelancer people who want to do investigative work do you find that there are certain personal strategies or sources of funding or things that you would recommend uh, just to anybody who is looking to do more of that while also working full-time? And then secondly, I would ask as well is that um, if, let's say, a story is maybe not immediately obvious, do you think that there is a case to be made for going and for submitting the pitch again to the same publication or to a variety of publications, even when not much attention is paid? Like, I'll just point to a specific example on this, but uh, I work in Shannon Aaron for a Shannon Independent Group, and uh, there was a story in relation to uh, search and rescue, and um, the, uh, the senator who I work for, Senator Crockwell, was trying to bring attention to this uh, greatly. And for about a year and a half, nothing was picked up until recently with the Sunday Business Post, in which there were two stories uh, released on it. But I'm just wondering, do you think that there's something to be said for that, um, uh, uh, for that persistence uh, there? Yeah, I suppose just as a freelancer, like when I was working as a freelancer, I used to write stories that hadn't really been ever covered before and it was difficult because um, editors like either like say I, I think I was the first if not one of the first people to write about the Valparade scandal in Ireland which is um, a drug that causes birth defects and um, that was used um, it's an epilepsy drug and it can cause birth defects um, and I had pitched it to an editor and they, they um, it took me a long time to convince the people actually to talk 
And the story was actually, it was published, but they didn't really realize, I suppose I was very young at the time as well, they didn't really realize the significance and it ended up being like 500 words and like page four or something, if you know what I mean. So like it can be quite frustrating. And I think the main thing is that you have to be confident in your story and explain the significance and explain it's the first time it's been said and this has what happened in the UK or, or, or something like that. Um, I suppose the other, um, another story that kind of really um, resonates because I was talking to, basically it was about, um, there's, a, there's a thing called reference labs um, and we were, um, it's basically if you want to test for microbiology organisms, stuff like that. And we were sending a lot of our samples to the UK at a high cost because we didn't have particular reference labs that we needed here. And I remember asking um, the HSE in the Department of Health, like I, I just went to a presser and like confronted the main people about it. And they actually laughed in my face and they said, you're never going to get this public, like no one will care about this. You're never going to get this published. And it ended up being like a whole page feature in the health supplement in the Irish Times, again, because I was a bit more confident in myself at that point. And I was like, I really convinced the editor to that this was an issue. So I think um, it's mainly like what, and we were saying before about confidence in your story um, and confidence in yourself. And also, I suppose one of the things I just wanted to say that is a kind of resonant across the three of us is that as a freelancer, I was often frustrated when I'd see scoops or I'd see like, and it's always like the Irish Times or the Irish Examiner, or kind of the, the big leading journalists that would get these scoops. And I was like, I'll never get that as a freelancer. Who's going to ever come to me? Um, and I suppose like, I did get tips as a freelancer because I built up contacts, but like it, it's not all about tips. You can see like mo most of our stories didn't really come from inside scoops. They might have just come from someone saying something to us or from us looking at something like the land registry, which I have spent the last seven months myself looking at um, for a religious property story. So um, yeah, like I think just persistence and being confident in your story is, is very important. I, I was just going to come in on that. Um, having worked in, in, and I'm not speaking, be careful, I'm not speaking <laughs> about the newsroom I worked in, which to be fair, you know, published uh, most of the things I did. Um, like, I think there's a, there's a kind of a problem in, in how traditional media works, and I don't know the answer to it, is that it tends to be run by, to kind of quote Tommy Tiernan, kind of mainly white and mainly shite people, <laughs> you know, of a certain vintage who, who are part of the furniture and like your job is to, like, it's a very archaic structure that we do, like you go in and you pitch a story to your news editor who likes certain types of stories, and again, I'm speaking in generalities here, um, and you kind of feel like I have, like, if my news editor isn't interested in what I'm doing, it doesn't make the newspaper, it doesn't mean that it's not a story, and that took me a long time to learn that it means that it's just not, you're not getting it into the story. Like, to me, the stuff I wrote was always a story. It just took me a while to get it into the newspaper. So I think there's a problem in how we do journalism is that we have to have a better way of understanding what's in the public interest. Like, just because a news editor decides that's not for me doesn't mean it's not a good story. Um, I think you can work, I think, but the Irish media needs to work with each other more. I think you need to partner with, you can partner with other journalists more. Um, which is something I was always big on, but it doesn't work because you, you can't, geez, you can't talk to the journal or, you know, yeah, I never understand really that, yeah. you know, I mean, to me, the story is what's important, not mm. that it's first or that it's in the examiner or the times or RT first. This scoop attitude, 
I think you can do real journalism better if you work with people like the right expert people, other journalists who might be better briefed on it than you are. Um, like I would reach out to Ken Fox all the time on FOI and we never work together. I think, you know, focus on the story and it will find its home, you know what I mean? Yeah, and like we do that a lot in terms of, like I, I worked on, because I, I have a genetics background and then Killian Woods and Barry White in the Business Post wrote a lot about genuity science yeah, from, a, from a data privacy point of view. And we actually teamed up together and it possibly, like it's one of the rare, rare examples that two media organizations yeah. teamed up together on a story and made it much better with yeah. our combined experience. And I think that's something that we really want to do a lot more of. Um, and it's something that everyone should be doing more of, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, to a question there. Thank you. Uh, all your cases, it, it appears to me that, that you had a lot of pushback from the institutions that you're covering. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, when, when you do point out the shortfalls or the, or the incredible scandals, for example, of the, the mother and baby abuse, or what went on in two of them, all these horrible events of the past, why do you think it is that the institutions themselves don't say, oh, gee, uh, I know this is probably not a question, but why the, oh, gee, we didn't really quite do so why do they follow back so much? Why don't they accept basically any of the things that they, and or come out of the same thing? Why don't they want to, what, 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 is the, what is fundamentally wrong with all these institutions? Oh, wow. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, that's a very big question. I, I mean, from the speaking from the stuff I did, um, like, I can't stress enough. Like, I started writing about it in 2009, and, like, to be frank, the religious artists didn't care. It wasn't a story. I was the only one doing it. So it was like, meh. You know, so there was, like, I did a lot of stuff on forced illegal adoption initially, and they, they genuinely was, they didn't care. Um, it wasn't a big enough story for it to matter. Um, I also think on issues like infant mortality, they can just say what happened years ago. Um, even though I found, I mean, the interesting thing about that story is that I found like uh, graves related to Bespera for children that were buried in unmarked graves in the 90s made absolutely no impact on them at all. Um, so I think fundamentally they don't care. Um, and I think they could, for a long time, they got away with saying the commission, mother and baby owned commission, is reporting on it or is investigating it so they can kick it down the road. That took six years. Um, and then you have like state inquiries can also be problematic vehicles. I mean, the commission made huge efforts to kind of undermine the work I did um, when I would have liked to have thought we were kind of on the same side. Um, so I, I think there's just a natural, like in the state, there's a natural unwillingness to accept responsibility for these issues because I think it opens up the area of redress. It opens up financial implications. Um, you know, like you have the state now saying, you know, God, the mother and baby homes redress scheme is going to be the largest of its kind in the state. It's not. Um, how difficult it is to find money for it, but yet they're going to be able to find billions for the micro redress scheme, but not for women who had their children taken from them. They're going to say that that's worth 10 grand, you know. Um, so I think fundamentally there's, they don't care. And I think there's an attitude where let's ride it out as long as we possibly can until the next thing comes along. Yeah, I think more surprisingly is that people don't seem to learn. So like, yeah, so yeah, obviously so building on the work that um, Connell did, um, like I, I was in touch with every religious organization involved in, in redress um, recently for that for a property story. And um, 
like I, I kind of expected them to be more transparent after 10 years of reporting, but most, no, most of them just wouldn't answer my questions. And it was simple questions like, did you sell this house? Like it wasn't, it wasn't anything to do with um, infant mortality or abuse. It was, did you sell this house on this date? And they were like, no, no comment kind of thing. So, so I suppose, I suppose one of the saddest things as well that I find is that like whatever about like obviously the state should be responding better to historic stuff, but I cover a lot of health issues that are happening now, and the, the and say are people like say children not getting um, disability services and ending up being disabled that they wouldn't have been they wouldn't have had these issues if they had got an operation or got speech therapy or things like that earlier. So it's things that they could the state could be doing something about now fixing the problem now and yet they're still pushed back so i suppose that's the kind of saddest thing that you see on a daily basis is the defense wall is up straight yeah. away and there's very little um that they're like oh yeah we know this is a problem and then yeah but what are you going to do and i suppose that's just what we encounter every day and it's very hard to explain it from a, a journalism point of view I I, know, yeah and <laughs> no, i was just going to say just to add to that i think you can find some answers in uh, to your question and how whistleblowers are treated in Ireland. Yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, if you if you look at people like Morris McCabe or more recently Shane Corr, these people, there are people, a lot of people that do want to speak up that could maybe um, help kind of uh, um, expose these things and would maybe, the people that would add to the uh, transparency um, in these organisations, but any time they speak up, invariably their careers uh, suffer. You know, in other countries, whistleblowers uh, are rewarded financially. Here, you yeah. lose your job, your career, your life. You, you, don't, you don't also you lose your your current job; you lose future jobs. Yeah, you know? yeah. You're, you're I you're can't. A, I'm, on, I'm not on the panel because I, I would have just been giving you a smash the patriarchy. Yeah. Right now. <laughs> but, but I think there's a there's a cultural attitude within the Irish civil service as well about you know. I got a letter from someone in the Department of Children and Youth Affairs a few years ago. Um, I was anonymous, but I mean, it pointed to a lot of what we kind of think, and it was you know you know, keep writing about what you're writing about, but know that the attitude within the department is they'd have all died in the tenements anyway. Mm -hmm. um, we're the department of the future, not of the past. Uh, and like, these are all things I suspected, but when you have someone within the department saying, you know, nobody gives a shit. So, um, <laughs> so I think it's probably actually a sort of nice way to round it off in that when people think it mightn't be the most financially rewarding, it mightn't, it might take you forever to get your story where you need it to be, but it can't be underestimated the power that investigative journalism actually has to possibly change lives, but also to expose the stuff. When you were saying maybe they don't learn, or do they not learn? I think they do learn. They just don't care again, yeah. you know? Because why would you keep doing that? Why would you do it to the women during, you know, who got infected blood and people with, um, um, all, all of that sort of stuff over the years. And you think of that's 30 years ago and nothing has, nothing has changed. But, or has it? So the thing is, is that there is, there is possibility for change, but I suppose like everything, it comes slow. But that, the, the, is it, so is it worth the effort, I suppose, was the, um, the main premise of it. Do you still think it's worth the effort? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it's worth the effort in 
the sense of does it make a difference and I still think it does I think like the work of the ditch recently shows you that it does um, uh, and like I think we need to probably have better vehicles for doing investigative journalism and that may not reside within the traditional forms of media that we have and I think that's what's so great about what the, the guys are doing here because I think it's harder to do it in a traditional media setting um, it frustrated the hell out of me that unless it was on primetime investigates it's not a real investigation yeah um, that kind of thing so I think a lot of the discussions I had working in the mainstream media was with other reporters going, wouldn't it be great if we could do something that would be kind of crowdfunded, where we could do stories that we actually give a damn about? And now it's happening. So I think that's really positive. Um, so it's a yes. So, so it's a yes, absolutely, yeah. I'm taking it <laughs> it's a yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I suppose that's a similar point. Like a lot of the, um, there's a lot of new media platforms, basically. I know we're yeah. part of the... We're in a company, Journal Media, which is part of the kind of media mainstream, though we're obviously a newer company than the Irish Times or the Irish Examiner. Um, and we're probably one of the few that actually has dedicated investigative journalists, like an actual platform. Yeah. So there's yeah. two dedicated investigative journalists and me as, as an editor, and then we have freelancers. And I think that's something that other um, organisations probably need to explore more of because, totally. yeah, so I, I think as well but it is hope for freelancers like there there are outlets out there paying freelancers for investigative work um but it is something that definitely needs to be done more but there is a, a brighter future possibly than there was a few years ago you have to think it's not yet yeah even being brought through like all the stories that um Connell and maria have done like course it's worth it like the mother and baby home stuff is you know possibly the biggest story like of the the past decade or so um you know again like as i said earlier on it, it's a tragedy like that there are so many other stories that haven't or will never see the light of day so yeah definitely and I think that thing about maybe if, it, if legislation doesn't always change, actually just hearing the stories and hearing voices that haven't been heard before matters in itself yeah. and it's important historically and culturally as well. Um, thank you so much. I think that was an absolutely, I think you were brilliant and I think you might have reinvigorated people's love to get out and become investigative journalists or keep on working on it. So to, to Connell, uh, Maria and Roman, thank you so, so much.